Have you ever had a spectacularly bad idea? Along my uh, span of life, probably way more than I'd care to admit to, terrifically bad ideas. One of the ones that I remember and left a mark on my brother for sure was that uh, we had been watching the Winter Olympics when we were boys, and I mean little boys, probably in that six, seven, eight-year-old range. And um, the thing that struck us in the Olympics was the bobsled. The bobsled run where the guys push the sled down that chute and then they ride to the end. It's just awesome to watch and captured the mind of little boys for certain. And we had at our house a stairwell. And we, we recognized that if we kind of took our blankets and put them around the banister and the wall rail, it kind of looked like a bobsled run. And um, the only thing we didn't have was a sled, and so we took the rocking chair to the top of the stairs, and, and then we recognized this was dangerous, and so we didn't want to just, you know, be reckless, so we took our little brother, the youngest one of us, and we put him in the chair, and we packed around him pillows and blankets from our bed. And then we'd watch the show, and just like on the show, we, my brother and I pushed that thing as fast as we could, and we launched him down the stairs. <clears throat> He still has a scar. The trip to the emergency room proved that was indeed a spectacularly bad idea. I bring this up because um, all of us probably have some spectacularly bad ideas, but, but I want you to, to, to take heart that in the arena of spectacularly bad ideas, uh, there are some really smart and intelligent people who have come up with some really horrible ideas in history. For example, I've been reading a book called Divided Highways, and it's an interesting book about how the highway system in the United States came into being. And in the book, there's this fascinating story about the engineers that were building the highway. Now, if you're an engineer, this is meant not in no way to cast dispersion on you today, but engineers sometimes see the immediate problem in front of them and not necessarily the big picture. And that was the case. For they were trying to build a highway from Barstow, California to Needles, California, across the Mojave Desert. And in the middle of the Mojave Desert, there is a mountain range, the Bristol Mountains, that stood as a barrier to their progress with the road. And getting through that mountain was going to be costly. It was going to take time, and it was not going to be easy. But in the early 1960s, when this was being built, two United States presidents had been championing an idea. President Eisenhower had an, a, a concept called Atoms for Peace. It was a way to use nuclear energy and nuclear uh, ideas for good. When President John F. Kennedy came into office uh, a year later. He launched a program called Operation Plowshare. It was an intentional effort to try to use nuclear energy for good and domestic means. And these engineers thought to themselves, what better plan than to blow up the Bristol Mountains with 22 atomic bombs? Now, this was the idea. And in fact, it got a lot of traction. 
it got so far down the pipeline of people saying, yeah, this is a great idea, that they even had decided to build a spectator stand where people could watch the mountains be blown up. <coughs> and they had a plan that with 22 atomic bombs set off simultaneously, that they would create an 11,000 feet wide gap in the mountains that they would be able to take their highway through. Well, the greatest motivator to do this, it would save $8 million of cost versus traditional construction. The whole project would have actually moved forward were it not for one person who kept asking a nagging question. After you blow up the, the mountain with these nuclear bombs, how long will it take until it's safe for us to resume building the road? And since no scientists could give them an answer, the idea failed. And it's a good thing it did, because what we now know is if they had done that, that we would have sent a lethal radioactive cloud across Flagstaff and Phoenix, Arizona, and likely would have made them inhospitable or in uninhabitable for people even today. Spectacularly bad ideas. Now, why all this talk about all these spectacularly bad ideas? Well, to introduce our new sermon series that we're going to go through the book of 1 John, you need to understand that some spectacularly bad ideas about faith and about Jesus were being put out into the world. And there were people, especially when Christianity moved from uh, its roots in Jerusalem in a predominantly Hebrew or Israelite culture into the Roman world in a predominantly Gentile culture, well, people started having the idea that you could take parts of the story and you can kind of adapt them as you wanted to your story and your way of thinking and your beliefs. It wasn't like there was something that was gospel truth in their minds. You could bend it, twist it, make it fit your culture. Now, this was a spectacularly bad idea. The gospel message wasn't something that was meant to be changed or twisted or accommodated. It was truth. And twisting the truth would not get you the truth any longer. The letter of 1 John is written to address the spectacularly bad teaching and idea that had come into to being called Gnosticism. It was a spectacularly bad idea, <clears throat> and it was based on some ideas that were, were uh, problematic. Here's the first thing about Gnosticism. The Gnostics believe that all material matter, anything that you could touch, anything that you could, could physically perceive, uh, the flesh, any of those things, the Gnostics said it's all inherently evil. Nothing good in the physical space at all. Everything in the physical space is bad. And the other side of the Gnostic opinion was the only thing that's good is the spiritual and everything in the spiritual world is good. Does this already seem, do you get already why this is maybe not a great idea? Because we recognize that not everything in the spiritual world is good, right? There's good and bad in that space. But they believed everything in the spiritual world was, was, was good, and everything in the physical world was bad. Now, because they believed that, they would also go a little further to say, 
because the flesh is inherently evil, there's no way that God, who is spirit, <coughs> could have ever been in the flesh. And so, because the flesh is evil, so it didn't fit their idea. And so they said Jesus was never a real person, that he was a spirit. And they had two different ideas. Some said that Jesus was a ghost who walked among us as a spirit. And others said, well, he wasn't a ghost necessarily. He was a spirit that attached itself for a short time to a fleshly man named Jesus, probably came on him at his baptism and then left either at the Mount of Transfiguration or at the cross. And this was what they believed about, about Jesus. They didn't believe that he was God with skin on, so to speak. They, they saw him as something very different. And this was an idea that they were teaching about who Jesus was. Worse yet, they had heard this idea that, that light is important. And light is a very important theme in the Bible. And so they said, every person is born with a little bit of light in them. The divine spark, they called it. And they believed that. This also is different from what Jesus taught, right? The Bible made it really clear that Jesus is the divine spark. He's the light. He's the one that's in us. It's not something that we inherently have in us. It's something that he brings to us, the light of the world. This was also a play on the oldest lie that humanity has ever heard. It's the lie that the serpent was whispering to Eve and to Adam, who was standing close by. This was the whisper of Satan. You will be like God. You have the same spark in you that's in God. You, you will be like God. This is what the Gnostics were believing. And the sad part was people were being deceived into, into, into agreeing with that, even people who had come to the faith. And they were falling into the Gnostic teachings. Now, how did it play out in real life? Well, remember that part about all flesh is bad? The Gnostics had to deal with that. And there were two extremes they used to deal with it. They said, because the flesh is evil, we should try to be perfect and not do anything evil. We should withdraw from society, live the ascetic life, and not have anything to do uh, with other people or, or anything that would contaminate us in any way. It was worse than, than trying to live under the law. It was an extreme kind of legalism, and it was impossible. No one is perfect, not even one. No one is righteous, not even one. On the other hand, was the other extreme that was even more immoral. And that was because the body, they believed, was just the flesh and it was evil, it couldn't corrupt the soul no matter what you did. So they, there was a whole segment that said, you know what, you can really engage in any behavior you want, and it won't corrupt your soul because it's just your fleshly body. And so it was like hedonism. They just do whatever they wanted. You see how this was a destructive, destructive teaching in the church and the world, and it was getting a lot of momentum. Well, let me now take you to John. I need you to understand some of the author of our letter. I know this is an extended introduction, but it sets up everything else we're gonna study over these next few weeks. John, of the disciples, had been perhaps the hardest working. 
He was never like Peter, the leader who was out there. Peter ran his own business. Peter was obviously an educated businessman, uh, did a lot of things right. He had a fleet of ships that he, or boats that he used for his fishing business. He was a natural leader. <coughs> that was Peter. John was the hardworking person in the background. Uh, he was a, a blue-collar kind of guy, right? He was just a hardworking kind of guy, probably in many ways, uh, not the most educated. The idea that John wrote several parts of the New Testament is actually a real testament to who God is and the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a reason people, when they looked at the disciples, they'd say they were uneducated or unlearned men, and no doubt they were looking at John when they felt that way. But there was something about John that Jesus found incredible. In fact, do you know that the Bible describes John frequently as the disciple that Jesus loved? It, it was a close bond that they had together. In fact, it is to John that Jesus, when he's on the cross dying, will turn to John, not to James, his brother. He'll turn to John and say, basically, John, take care of my mom. It's a close relationship. John was a good guy. And John loved Jesus. Huge fan. He was sold out 100% as a Christ follower. So when John writes this letter in 3 John, he is, or 1 John, he is writing a letter that we often call one of the great love letters of the New Testament. And we say that because the word love shows up 38 times in this letter. I mean, it's, it's a powerful theme for John. It was a powerful theme in John's gospel. Remember John 3.16, for God so loved? Love was a powerful theme in John's gospel as well. But there's another word that shows up almost as much as love. It's the word know. Not N-O, but K-N-O-W. In the Greek, it comes from the word gnosis, to know. Interestingly enough, the word to know, gnosis, is where we get our word Gnostic from. This idea, this special knowledge that they thought they had about God and about this divine spark, he is actually writing a letter to the Gnostics. He's writing a letter to the people who are perverting the gospel message. And he's writing a letter to warn Christians, don't fall for the lie. But here's what's amazing. Although John later on will write some really harsh words to the Gnostics. In Revelation, when he talks about the Nicolaitans, it's likely he's talking about the Gnostics there. And he talks about hating them. But here, at the beginning, when he talks about the Gnostics, I think you'll hear him inviting them to abandon the false teaching and to come to Jesus, the truth. Well, I've done enough building it up. Let's dive into this letter, and I want you to see now, based on what you understand, how that he is systematically taking that idea apart. Let's read verse 1 together. It says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. <laughs> What's he saying to people who say all flesh is bad and Jesus is just a spirit? He's saying, guess what? I touched him. 
He's real. This is the first verse of his letter. Jesus is real. He wasn't imaginary. He wasn't a fable. He wasn't a ghost. He was flesh and blood. I was with him. I can vouch for who he is and who he was. Right out of the gate, he makes this powerful statement. I was with him. There's something else about John that's remarkable here. You see, at the time that John is writing this, in some parts of the world, persecution has already broken out. And telling the world that you're associated with Jesus could be risky and dangerous. And the second thing that John is doing right out of the gate is saying, I'm not ashamed that I know Jesus. He was my friend. Yeah, absolutely. I patted him on the back before. I held his hand. I worked with him shoulder to shoulder. Absolutely, I knew Jesus. He was putting the world on notice. And friends, the world will notice, John. And because John will not relent in his message about Jesus, and because he is so powerful and persuasive, the officials, the Roman officials, will banish him to an island where they think he won't be able to do any more harm spreading this, what they saw as a false teaching in the world. The false teaching was, of course, the gospel message of Jesus, not false at all. But he was preaching in a world that didn't want to receive the truth. Sadly, he lived in a time where they would rather believe a lie than believe the truth. That which I have touched, that's what I proclaim to you concerning the word of life. <clears throat> now, I want you to think about some words you're going to hear in this first chapter, just 10 verses. But you're going to hear these words over and over, life and live and light these are themes that are really important to this message. And so he says in the next verse, the life appeared. He was real. We have seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul had written that Jesus himself was the light of the gospel. John seems to be echoing that same theme, and he invites them incredibly to have fellowship with the truth. Now, over time, we'll learn that the Gnostics will not come to the truth. In fact, they'll double down, triple down, and make their mark, even writing false gospel accounts to try to pervert the truth. But here at the beginning, we see John offering the truth and saying, listen to this, believe this. You see, he knew they were believing a spectacularly bad idea, but not all ideas are bad ideas, the truth of the gospel is a spectacularly good idea because it was God's idea. <clears throat> well, he makes a shift here, and as we make the shift into the next verse, he begins to share God's message and the truth of the gospel with his audience. It's a great reminder to us, and there's some important teaching here. 
In verse 5, he says, This is the message that we heard from him, that is from Jesus himself, and we declare it to you. God is the light, and in God there is no darkness at all. Listen, God is not a spark. He's a sun. The Bible tells us that in heaven there is no need of a, of a lamp or no need of a light because God is there. God lights heaven. He is eternal light and he is eternal life. Quite different from a tiny little spark that flashes for a second and then is no more. Every word that John writes here is an attack on Gnosticism and it is a word of truth to encourage the Christians. And so he now tells them of the risk of their spectacularly bad idea. And it's as if he's saying, listen, if you do this thing and you believe this thing, the fallout is going to last for a long time. And the results could be deadly, eternally deadly. And so he says, if we claim to have fellowship with Jesus, yet we walk in the darkness, then we lie. And we don't live in the truth. But if we walk in the light, as Jesus is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That word sin shows up a lot in this letter too. You see, the Gnostics were engaging in all kinds of sinful behavior because, well, they didn't think it mattered. And John wants to make clear that sin matters. Sin has consequences. The Bible makes it really clear that the wage of sin is death. That all sin, even little sins that we think are inconsequential to humongous sins that we think are awful, they all have consequences. And they all lead us farther away from God, not closer to God. And ultimately, if left unconfessed, unrepented of, and, and have it turn them over to the blood of Christ for cleansing, they lead to eternal death. So 28 times, he's going to talk about sin because he wants the Gnostics and these people who are engaging in all kinds of immoral behavior saying, well, it doesn't matter, it doesn't hurt my spirit any. He wants them to know it matters. He purifies us from all sin. Here also, I think, is an olive branch. You see, he doesn't say to his audience at this point, you hopeless, gutless sinners, there's no hope for you. Not quite the opposite. Even for his Gnostic audience, even those people who have believed a lie, there's still hope. Jesus' forgiveness can forgive them. They were believing something, a spectacularly bad idea, but they had a, a savior in Jesus who loves us in spite of our worst moments and our worst ideas. And that's an encouragement. That's an encouragement for me and for you because probably, if we're honest, we all have some spectacularly bad things in our life that we wish hadn't happened. Whether it's something said or something done, it's a regret. So John really focuses the remainder of his message on redemption and forgiveness in this chapter. <clears throat> Listen to the next couple of verses. They can change your life. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's John's simplified way of saying we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us. And now perhaps the greatest verse that he'll write in this entire letter. If you don't have this highlight in your Bible, highlight it. If you haven't memorized this verse yet, memorize it. This is an important verse. If we confess our sins, John says, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a beautiful thing? All, not some, not, not from the little stuff, but not the big, from everything. This is grace. This is forgiveness. This is the whole purpose for why Jesus came. <clears throat> if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just, and he will forgive us our sins. He'll purify us from all unrighteousness. But, he doubles down, if we claim we've not sinned, then we've made him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. So here at the end of the first letter, we're left simply with two ideas. One spectacularly bad, one amazingly good. And it begs the question from his audience and from us today, where am I? Have I acknowledged my sin? Have I confessed it before the Lord? Or do I deny? Do I think like the Gnostics did that whoever I am, whatever I am, I'm good enough. I don't have to change. In life, we make some spectacularly bad decisions, but I hope today, especially if you've never yet accepted Jesus, I hope today you'll make a spectacularly good decision, that you'll make a God decision, that you'll say, you know what, I want to trust in Jesus. I want to put my faith in Jesus, and I want a clean slate, and I want a new start, because that's what Jesus offers. In this verse, he tells us, hey, don't walk in darkness, but walk in the light. The light of God changes everything. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, I invite you to do so as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation. Mm -hmm.